Hey, podcast community, it's Eric, and I've got something exciting for all you online entrepreneurs out there. If you're looking to take your e-commerce store to the next level, you need to check out Aurora Repricer. With Aura, you can effortlessly reprice your Amazon inventory automatically. Ready to elevate your Amazon business? Head over to milwaukeemafia.com slash Aura, that's A-U-R-A, to get started today. You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your weekly podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome back to Milwaukee Mafia. I'm Eric Waltergens. I'm Gavin Schmidt. And we're back with a full episode. So this is the first episode of season two. Yeah. I'm a little out of practice. Uh, I gotta gotta stretch a little bit. he's, He's got his notes ready to go. Yep. And what is our topic for the day? All right. So we are now, uh, we're firmly in the 1930s. So we're kind of like, we're coming out of prohibition at this point. Okay. And we are making a slight detour to Waukesha. And uh, anybody here who's from Wisconsin doesn't need me to tell them where Waukesha is. But since we apparently have listeners all over the world, (laughs) uh, Waukesha is a city just to the west of Milwaukee. Um, at the time this happened, it would have been its own city. Now, I mean, you can almost not even tell where one one starts and yeah. one ends. Yeah, I mean, there's there's Brookfield in between the two of them, but it's all just strip malls. So it, it kind of <laughs> just keeps going. Anyway, so we're going to talk about Waukesha. And I'm going to start out just kind of giving you a rundown of a few incidents that happened. These aren't really uh, all that important, but just give you an idea. Okay. Frank Moretta enters a Waukesha tobacco store on White Rock Avenue. This is back in September 7th, 1913. Again, we're in the 30s, but I'm going backwards just to kind of catch us up here. His friend waited in the car. When he exited the store, he saw his friend talking to three Italians and went over to join them. A fight broke out, and Moretta found himself in a duel where he was shot. A witness chased the getaway car, but stopped when they fired on him. He then informed the sheriff. Milwaukee police talked to the Waukesha police, and they said... Well, the likelihood of catching the people who shot him is pretty unlikely. (laughs) Uh, If they're like all the other Italians we've dealt with, uh, they're not going to tell you anything. So, in fact, uh, Moretta's cousin, who was with him at the time, was briefly held in jail for not talking to the police. But, of course, he, he he was let go, and Moretta died of internal hemorrhaging. No one's ever caught. A few years later, August 1918, two Waukesha Italians were surrendered to the sheriff by bondsman Frank Kale. The men had been involved in a, quote, cutting fray. You can imagine whatever that is. I don't know. (laughs) At a saloon, again, on White Rock Avenue. This is the main stretch where the Italians lived in Waukesha. was on White Rock Avenue, which if you know Waukesha, you probably know where that is. And if you don't know Waukesha, you don't. And there's no way for me to explain that. So (laughs) you just kind of have to know where that is. Kale, on top of being a bondsman, was also a plumbing contractor and a real estate man. He was considered to be the king of Waukesha's Little Italy, kind of like Vito Guadalabene or Mike Vitucci in Milwaukee. Um, he was not Sicilian, for the record. He was Italian, but not Sicilian. Was Frank Kale good or bad? Leave that in the air. <laughs> I'm curious. Um, does Waukesha at this point in time have, and maybe it does now, I guess I don't know enough so, to know, but did they have a huge, a fairly large Italian community? No. No. So it, this just happens to... It was a few square blocks, blocks and, yeah. Okay. So Kale 
holds a meeting with 30 Italians at the courthouse in December 1922. After this meeting, I don't know what happened at this meeting, but after this meeting, he returns home and he checks to see if his wife wants to go downtown for a little while. As he walked up to his doorway, he turned to notice there was a light in his vehicle. He walked over by the vehicle, and it exploded. The force smashed every window in his home, and pieces of the car were found blocks away. Mrs. Kale was knocked to the floor. Ironically, even though the car exploded, the gas tank was undamaged. <laughs> The sheriff deduced that the bomb was timed, but the assassins were a little bit off in their timing. Kale refused to make a statement to the police, and he said, I don't know about any enemies that I have, and I'm not going to tell you what we just had a meeting about tonight. That was the end of that. Nobody really knew. Violence would continue. A few men, uh, Louis Sasso, Leo Grasso, Vincenzo Orlando, and Paul Latta. These are not names you need to know. They spent the afternoon of April in April 1923 at their friend Nick Flamingo's house, working in the garden. Nick Flamingo is a sweet name, but <laughs> but he's not he's not important, unfortunately. <laughs> but it is a sweet name. Gavin wishes he would come up more often, but he just doesn't. Yeah, I would love to have a whole episode about Nick Flamingo. <laughs> um, shortly after they left, Leo Grasso was shot five times. And stabbed seven times Wow! by the other two men who joined him to Flamingo's house. One bullet severed his spinal column at the base of his neck, killing him instantly. His body was found dumped on the grounds of the Waukesha Sanatorium. The other two men were arrested at a boarding house, again on White Rock Avenue, and two revolvers were found under a bed. One of the revolvers was found between the mattress and the springs. Now, here's something that the... Uh, coroner did that I don't think is a good practice. But in this case, <laughs> the coroner, Dr. Herbert Saito, took Orlando's knife and inserted it into Grasso's wounds, and he found that the blade fit the wounds perfectly. Pretty sure that's not how they do it. <laughs> but, but like, yep, this was the knife. It's just fine. They plead guilty to manslaughter, and they are given 10 years in state prison. So... Yes, you can you can shoot and stab a guy several times and get ten years. So that's that's good to know. Uh, Kale was not the only victim of bombings. On August eleventh, nineteen twenty-five, an explosion destroyed much of the home and grocery store of Phyllis Marconi, who was a widow with five children. She lived on White Rock Avenue. I'm beginning to think White Rock Avenue is Waukesha. There's <laughs> nothing more to it than <laughs> yes. Her neighbors, Kate and Mary Donovan, lost a wall that was, quote, caved in as if crushed by a mighty hand. Kate was pinned to her bed by a ceiling beam that fell on her, and Mary was bruised when tossed from her bed. Police suspected a man whose marriage proposals to Phyllis Marconi were rejected. She denied this, though. She said, no, 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 no. I don't have any enemies. It's all good. In August 1930, Prohibition agents raided a home owned by Phil Sasso, who is the brother of Lou Sasso, one of the guys who stabbed and shot this guy previously. Phil Sasso lives on White Rock. <laughs> they find 30 barrels, 5 vats, and 65-gallon jugs of beer, which they dumped out. This list of events in Waukesha brings us up to the Caruso family, which is really our focus, but I just wanted to kind of show you that there was... The same crap going in, on in Milwaukee is also going on in Milwaukee. Joseph and Jenny Caruso came from the same village in Sicily as Lucky Luciano, fame, famed uh, gangster, 
and Frank Sinatra. So they so they moved uh, to the United States from the same Sicilian village along with their son Pasquale. And in Milwaukee, they had several more children. Joe, the dad, worked as a garbage collector. Yeah, of course. And when he became a U.S. citizen, his witness saying that he would be a good citizen was Pete Guardalabene, the either mob boss or mob boss son, depending on what time that was at. Family lived in the third ward in Milwaukee, of course. By the 1920s, Pasquale Caruso, the son, uh, had already turned bad. He shot Detective Hop in the knee and the neck on September 18th, 1924, while being questioned in a tavern. He fled, and he would not be arrested for another six years when he was caught in Crown Point, Indiana. It's not advisable to shoot police in the <laughs> knee and neck. I did not recommend that. Man, but he didn't go that far and managed to elude police for six years. Yeah. So that's... The police searched his room after he left. They found 11 shotguns and rifles, along with some moonshine. While in jail, he tried to get the Italian uh, ambassador to represent him in court. But the ambassador said, ah, no. <laughs> He's like, I, I represent the Italian people, but I draw the line at shooting a detective. That is not okay. <laughs> Amazingly enough, even though he was crippled for life, he would live off a pension the rest of his life, Detective Hop, at trial, suggested that Caruso get probation, and he did. So, didn't even end up going to jail for Weird. For Why would he do that? Oh, nice guy. Yeah, I guess. While he's in hiding in <laughs> Indiana, his younger brother, Mike, becomes a criminal. He gets arrested once for burglary and grand larceny. He serves three years in the state reformatory at Green Bay. He gets out on parole and is arrested again for carrying a concealed weapon which sends him back to the state reformatory he gets out he gets arrested a third time this time for car theft amazingly for car theft they only fine him a hundred dollars <laughs> i don't know who sets these rules but apparently car theft is not that big of a deal but i mean back in the 30s a hundred dollars was a lot more money still, than it is now no it is so. it is it's a significant amount of money but but not not being sent back to prison after you've already been in prison twice for stealing a guy's <laughs> yeah. car. But whatever. Uh, Pasquale Caruso, our main character for this episode. It's March 1933. The heat is on in Milwaukee. He's having some trouble in Milwaukee. So he ends up moving to Waukesha. He lives with his bootlegging partner, Patsy Sherpa, along with Sherpa's wife, Gaetana. Uh, where do you suppose they live? Oh, that White Rock Road, of course. They do. Oh, yep. They're on White Rock Avenue. Okay. White Rock Avenue. I'm seeing, making sure you're paying attention. <laughs> yep. They're to live on White Rock Avenue. According to family legends, uh, Patsy, the partner, had previously lived in Ohio, where his job was to collect protection money for the mob from local businesses. I have no idea if that's true. That's like what a grandchild told me. In Waukesha, Caruso repeatedly tried to force his attentions on his business partner's wife. Don't do that. That's a bad, bad idea. <laughs> when she refused him, he would call her a whore. And I apologize for that word, but that is what he said. Uh, she did not appreciate his advances or what he would call her. And on one occasion, she retrieved a revolver from upstairs and shot at him three times. Amazingly, he dodged all three bullets uh, and fled in his car. So he no longer lived with this guy. Caruso is now, a couple days later, he's playing cards 
with Phil Sasso and uh, Vincenzo Orlando. And Orlando is another one of these guys who was involved in the stabbing and shooting incident earlier in this episode. Uh, they're playing cards. A fight breaks out because this is what happens when you play cards. <laughs> the men go outside and Orlando, who's already served time for murder, now stabs Sasso in the stomach, causing a 10-inch wound. And Caruso runs off with the knife. When questioned by the sheriff, Orlando admitted that a fight broke out, but he would not say that anybody stabbed anybody else. Uh, the sheriff was very suspicious of this because somebody had a big knife wound. <laughs> and Sasso died in the hospital the next day. They're just like, oh, I don't know how that happened. <laughs> yeah. This time, Orlando was not given 10 years. He was given life in prison. Ironically, Sasso, the man who he just stabbed to death, had been the same person who petitioned the parole board to release Orlando from prison. So he got his buddy out of prison, only to be stabbed to death by his friend. Milwaukee detectives burst into the Caruso homestead and arrested another brother, Peter, in late August 1934. Pasquale claimed that when the police did this, they physically knocked over his mother, although there's really no evidence of this, and then the mother died shortly thereafter from a heart illness, which they claimed was caused by this police being rough in the house. The Carusos were not very happy with the police at this point. During her brief illness, she was treated by Dr. Salvatore Migna, who happens to be a mafia member and is later associated with Joe Bonanno, who is like the biggest mafia guy in the entire country. But that's neither here nor there because that's, that's a New York story. We don't talk about those here. <laughs> Mike Caruso and two others were in a tavern when they got into an argument with another person over a dice game. One of the Italians poked the man in the ribs with the revolver, so he left. But he soon returned with a sawed-off shotgun. By the time he got back, though, <laughs> Mike Caruso had left. Just all these little things breaking out. Shortly after that, a man with a club comes to the Caruso home looking for Mike Caruso. Um, Mike Caruso apparently was selling alcohol, but he was doing it in a very clever way. He had rigged up these 15-gallon jugs to only hold five gallons. And in the bottom, there was a secret compartment that he filled with water. So it felt like you had a 15-gallon jug. Oh, come on. But when you poured it out, you only had five gallons, and then their bottom half was just water. They were not very happy with this. But the guy with the club uh, was unlucky. He was not home, so he did not get to club him. <laughs> Pasquale Caruso, again, our main character, uh, is in Waukesha. And he returned to Milwaukee later in the evening. At first, he visits a friend on Cass Street, um, which is in the Third Ward. He leaves, and from there, he stops at the Palm Beach Tavern. From there, he stops at a smoke shop. And he finally goes into Milan's Bakery on North Water Street in Milwaukee. It's 11.20 at night. And while walking into the bakery, he's shot twice in the back with a shotgun. There is just so much violence here and just not a whole lot of reasoning behind it. No. <laughs> the people who shot him drive off northbound on Water Street. The car was witnessed by another man walking by. Um, he, could, he couldn't see who they were, what kind of car it was. All he heard was Caruso crying out from the bakery, some vulgarity, and then, they have broken both my legs. Caruso had a loaded thirty-two Smith & Wesson revolver on the front seat of his car, but it wasn't in his pocket. So, 
police suspected that he didn't actually expect to get attacked. If he had expected to get attacked, he would have yeah, carried it on him. Yeah. The baker inside the store was kneading bread when he heard the shots. One broke the window in the bakery's door, and some of the pellets flew past the baker's head and going into the wall. He was okay, though. He was able to find uh, Caruso lying just outside on the ground, complaining about pain in his back and legs. Uh, they had known each other for a while because Caruso would routinely come in late in the day to get day-old bread for his dog. Other people uh, see certain things, but nothing enough that they can really do anything about it. Um, enough people heard, you know, I got shot or they hit me or variations of this. But nobody could really identify the people who did it. Caruso was taken to the hospital where he refused to talk to the police. His brother Mike arrived at the hospital and the two of them spoke in Italian. Mike told the police he now knew the story and would handle the matter himself. Pasquale then told police that it was actually Detective Deaton who shot him. And for those who don't recall, Detective Louis Deaton was the guy in the Third Ward who was not Italian but could speak Italian. Italian okay. So he, he was like the first Italian, well, the yeah. first police officer that they had that could speak Italian. Yeah, so like all all the Italians know this guy because he's kind of like the main detective patrolling in the Third Ward. The police didn't really believe this. They were like, yeah, you know, Detective Deaton doesn't go around <laughs> shooting people in the back with a shotgun. Um, and they kind of, this was also suspicious because Caruso, of course, had already shot this other detective in the knee and the neck. Um, so I don't know if he was trying to suggest that the cops were getting revenge on him or whatever, but nobody really believed this. They were mm. like, that's kind of suspicious. The next morning, even though he had mostly been shot in the legs, apparently it was bad enough that he was bleeding to death and he was going to die. So Pasquale now tells the police, okay, it wasn't Detective Deaton. Um, pretty sure that I was shot by my old bootlegging partner, Patsy Sherpa. Because he had, he had threatened me many times. It was probably him. Don't know if he thinks it really was him or if he's trying to get revenge on this guy because his wife turned him down. <laughs> I don't know. But they don't seem to take that too seriously either. Um, everybody knows that he's in the bootlegging business. And as police go around asking people, the story does come out about uh, Sherpa's wife shooting at him. So they start figuring, they put the pieces together and they're like, yeah, I don't know. Detectives go around, they ask more and more people, and basically the bottom line is nobody knows who it is because he's got so many enemies, it could be just about anybody. <laughs> Apparently this guy was just pissing everyone off. Um, they talked to one guy who suggested the detectives talk to a man known as One-Armed Jimmy, who will come back shortly. Detectives also find out about the trick that Mike Caruso was playing with the with the fake alcohol bottom. So they're like, okay, maybe he shorted somebody on some alcohol. If his brother's doing it, he's probably doing it too. So they're like, okay. But again, everybody hates these guys, so it could be anybody. <laughs> a former detective reported that Mike Caruso, the younger brother, was a member of the East Side Cigarette Burglar Gang <laughs> that the that <laughs> cops had been looking for. Caruso was then arrested at the corner of Milwaukee and Knapp, uh, where he was carrying a concealed weapon, which he's not supposed to be doing. Especially because he's been in and out of prison a couple times already. Um, with him at the time of the arrest was Phil Clemente and Martin Azalina, who were also arrested on vagrancy charges, which is what they used to do to people. They couldn't charge you with anything else. 
they would arrest you for vagrancy, which is basically just loitering. Later on, this uh, the Supreme Court kicks this out. And they're, they're, you can't do that. Yeah, you can't arrest people just for hanging out. <laughs> but back in the day, that's how they would just randomly arrest people. Caruso, Mike Caruso, told the officers that he had been followed that evening by two suspicious-looking Italians wearing overcoats. So he's like, I have a concealed weapon on me for a very good reason. Pasquale, his older brother, finally does die a few days later. And the newspapers talk to Detective Louis Deaton. Deaton tells the newspapers that he thought that Pasquale Caruso was, quote, insane. And that, quote, I think that the man who killed him deserves a gold medal. (laughs) So he's not sad about this at all. Detectives go to Waukesha to conduct an investigation and find that Caruso um, had been in the illegal alcohol business, which they already knew, but he had been doing it for two or three years at that point. He had operated his own little brewery on White Rock Avenue (laughs) with a few other guys. Um, and the, the three other guys that they knew that he had done done this business with, one of them was currently in the Chicago jail, and the others were in Waupon Prison because they had been involved in a holdup in West Bend, Wisconsin. So every all of his former business partners are all locked, locked up. up. <laughs> um, Pasquale had moved around a couple times in Waukesha, but every new place he lived at was all on White Rock Avenue. So. Because that's all there was yeah. in Waukesha. I'm very convinced at yeah. this point. <laughs> I've got this delicious aristocrat brandy here, and I should be drinking it every time I say White Rock Avenue. <laughs> you would be not able to get home if you did that. No, but <laughs> Milwaukee officers questioned Sherpa, the former business partner, searched his home. They were satisfied with the alibi that he was able to come up with, so they're like, no, this isn't the guy. They repeatedly talked to people who said, Frankly, I'm glad he's dead. <laughs> nobody, nobody seemed too upset about this. And I and I like how they're not even sugarcoating it. Like they're not like, oh, it's such a tragedy, but he was yeah. a terrible person. No, they're just like, thank God he's dead. Yeah. Uh, Pete Guardalabene, uh, who at this time probably is the mob boss, I'm sure, uh, he was interviewed and he told police, I didn't really have much to do with uh, Pasquale Caruso. Uh, I knew who he was. Um he said that his only connection was that for a while he had possession of Caruso's mother's body following her death. Uh, keep in mind that Guadalupe Benny, he ran a funeral home. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, so at first it sounds weird, and then you think about it, and you're like, okay. But he told, he told the police that the family was so poor that all he could do was embalm her. They couldn't even afford to have a funeral. I think this is a little disingenuous. Um, as we saw earlier, uh, he had been the witness at the father's citizenship hearing. So it's like he knew he knew the Caruso family, at least that well. I think that he's not telling everything there, but either way. Detectives searched Mike Caruso's apartment. They found no evidence of the cigarette burglary they accused him of. They interviewed the guy who was with him, Clemente, who knew nothing about the burglary. They're going around and they find another man named John Bruno, who found out that calls had been coming in to the Cinderella Tavern for the Caruso family from a tavern in Madison. But this leads nowhere. So, doesn't matter. <laughs> doesn't matter. We're leaving that alone. Can I Can I interject real quick? I want to know. Can you explain the cigar, cigla, cigarette burglary mm-hmm. thing? Is this something associated with, like, the cigarette vending machines? Or is this way, way before that? At this point, it probably wouldn't be. I mean, this is the 1930s, so um, 
it would depend on where they were burgled from. Um, but for all I know, it's like they went to a, a warehouse and, and they just, just stole a lot of cigarettes. cigarettes. Okay. Yeah. Crusoe's funeral was held on December 19th. Uh, detectives ask a, an Italian lady to attend the funeral and report back anything that she saw. Um, there was nothing really to see. Um, only 20 people bothered to attend the funeral. <laughs> so not a not a big lavish affair. And they all probably hated him, yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. Mike Caruso ends up going back to prison for having that concealed gun on him. Um, his attorney at the time is Mario Migna, who is the brother of Dr. Salvatore Migna, who we mentioned earlier. Mario Migna, the attorney, is also a mob member. Um, he's going to come up later because he's involved in child trafficking. He's great. Um, yeah, you're, you're, not, you're not even joking. You're like, yeah, straight facing that one. <laughs> yeah, and as you should because, yeah, an attorney involved in uh, child trafficking, not a great guy. Yeah, at this point, so Mike's going back to prison. He just recently got married. He's only been with his wife for four months, but uh, too bad for her because <laughs> he's going to prison. Police checked in with Mike Vitucci in Milwaukee. He told them that Mike Caruso's wife had visited him earlier that week, you know, just kind of see what was up. And Vitucci's like, all I know is that I'm confident it wasn't the police who shot Pasquale. I'm confident it was Italians. The detectives made note that they think that Vitucci knew more than he was saying. He probably even knew who did it, but they were going to leave it at that. An interpreter spoke with police and told them the Caruso family was trying to steer the investigation to Waukesha, when the actual killers lived in Milwaukee, but she did not elaborate on that. Finally, a couple months later, police find one-armed Jimmy. Really? Yeah. <laughs> he said he was going to come back. One-armed Jimmy. One-armed Jimmy, who uh, his real name is Vincenzo uh, Caggio, or Caggio, but went by one-armed Jimmy. Presumably, he has one arm. <laughs> The police didn't, did not bother to note that, but I will assume he only had one arm. He told them that on the night of the murder, he was actually in the smoke shop the same time that Caruso was in the smoke shop. The store was very crowded. Uh, he recalled a few men being in there, including a guy named Louie and a guy named Vaca. So uh, that could have been helpful, except that's all he knew, and the police weren't able to figure out who Louie and Vaca were. One-armed Jimmy, strangely enough, had previously lived in the same house as Vincent Krupe. And Vincent Krupe, if you remember way back, was sort of the head of uh, vice and prostitution in Milwaukee. So it doesn't mean that one-armed Jimmy was involved, but uh, he was good friends with that guy. Mm -hmm. Detective spoke to a few more people, but ultimately it leads to a dead end and the case is closed because you only try so hard to solve these kind of things. <laughs> a year later, there was a short epilogue Another brother, Frank Caruso, gets sentenced to 18 months in prison after threatening a girl with a revolver. But after that, the Caruso family stays on the right side of the law, or at least they don't get caught anymore. So after these couple bad years of Pasquale, Mike, Peter, Frank, these bad, bad brothers, they finally clean up their act. There's one final paragraph, but I will stop here in case you had anything well, I'm really curious. So, so I've heard a lot of connections between these Waukesha people and Mo actual Milwaukee Mafia members. Yeah. Are these, do we know that they're all 
mafia members? Are they or because uh, we know the Italian community is very tight niched. Mm-hmm. Do they just happen to know each other, or is there a direct tie here with the mafia? And like, is there almost like a subchapter of the Milwaukee mafia in Waukesha that's doing a lot of what we've just heard? All right. So most of the time, I cannot know if somebody is a member or not. Um, the only way that I ever know for sure is if they live long enough where when the time comes that they were finally like, like the FBI was looking into this and people were naming names. Um, but anybody who's like dying in the twenties or thirties, you have to kind of guess. I find it most likely that Pasquale probably was, um, but I don't know that for sure. Um, and yeah, I mean, similar to how they had connections in Racine, they had connections. I mean, they wouldn't be their own separate right. thing. But, but I, like a subchapter almost. But yeah. Like you got a guy over here that's running, you know, like I heard you, t- there was a lot of talk about like um, prohibition type stuff, mm-hmm. you know, brewing beer and stuff like that. So I, and I just, I would assume that these people were kind of the mafia's arm in Waukesha yeah. that was running that. Right, and that that would be my impression as well. Yeah, and and that's the thing. Like, even though prohibition wasn't as big in Milwaukee as in other cities, I mean, it still existed. You still, you know, it was still you could make money selling booze. But I almost do kind of wonder if it was maybe more profitable to have these little side things in Waukesha or Racine. Um, I don't know enough about either one of them to know like what the politics are and that sort of thing. Yeah. But I almost wonder if maybe there's like a better market in like the surrounding community than in Milwaukee itself. I I could see that because you would think about it like Milwaukee was such a strong alcohol community. Yeah. And and like you said, we think about it now, well, Waukesha is Milwaukee, so it should be the same. But like you said earlier on in the episode, Waukesha wasn't Milwaukee back then. No. There was quite a distance between the two cities. So that might be a completely untapped market. Yeah, it that could they be could go to. It could be. I mean, sometimes I compare Milwaukee and Madison, and and like in Madison, like everybody there. Well, not everybody there, but anybody there, like in the government, just hated alcohol. <laughs> the cops hated alcohol. the The city hated alcohol. The state hated alcohol. I mean, everybody in Madison hated it. So the bootleggers in Madison, it was more dangerous, but it was far more profitable, profitable because it was so much harder to get right. in there. But I don't know how that, where it is in Waukesha and Racine. I'm guessing it's somewhere. It's obviously it's not as bad as you know, as dangerous as Madison. But I'm wondering if maybe it wasn't quite as easy to get a drink in Waukesha or Racine as in Milwaukee proper. Um, I I don't know enough to really know that, but. But that does make sense. It's a smaller community. So there's probably going to be less people doing it. Yeah. I mean, there probably was something there, but... Yeah. And who knows, maybe maybe all they're doing is these people are not members of the mafia per se, mm-hmm. but they're just more or less like they went into Waukesha, saw these guys doing this and said, oh, well, if you want to keep doing this, you're going to start paying us a cut of what you're sure. doing. And sure, sure. So I don't know in your definition if that becomes a to me that's like an alliance or yeah. something like that. Not even an alliance because the mafia might have just gone in and said, "Well, 
you're going to have this alliance with us or bad things are going to happen. Right. Well, as we talked about like way, 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 way back, back so far back that we can't even remember mm-hmm. anymore, um, we talked about the structure and like underneath like the members, there's what's called associates. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of these guys would probably fit into that category. Where- yeah. But it's, you know, it's hard to say where you draw that line because- the associate is such a gray area. If you're doing something that's making money for the mob, you're an associate. But other than that, there's no there's no real clear definition. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would assume that at the very least, that's where these guys fit in. in. Yeah. yeah, there was there was somehow money funneling whether they were actually members of the mafia. We'll never know, right? But but there was definitely some sort of transactional thing going on there. Are you going to finish up the... I'll finish it, finish it up. Okay, so decades later, okay. many years later, uh, the FBI starts investigating the mob. And although they're not really interested in like this old-timey stuff, they, they get a little bit of background. They want to know the history. They want to know what's going on. And so they get bits and pieces of that. And an informant explains to them that what had happened in this situation was that Pete Guardalabene, who claimed he didn't know anything, he had ordered the killing himself because of a feud not further explained, and that the killers in this case were Peter Balistrieri, who is the uncle of Frank, who we'll talk about later, mm-hmm. and Sam Ferreira, and Sam Ferreira will later become a mob boss as well. Um, Sam Ferreira was originally from Illinois. He operated a bar, as many of these guys did. Um, and he was kind of married in. He married into the Marino family, Laura, who was the daughter of Nick Marino and the sister of Santo Marino. And I'm sure you remember that we had an episode with all the Marinos. <laughs> yes, yes. So so he's married into that. Um, and when he got married, his best man was Pete Guardalabene. So allegedly... Peter Balistrieri and Sam Ferrer were the guys who shot Pasquale Caruso and then drove off. There's really no evidence of that other than this informant saying so, you know, like 30 years Definitely. after the fact. But that's the story that the FBI was told. So more more than likely, this is somebody that's on their deathbeds like, yeah, I'll tell you some stuff that yeah. I know. I mean, I, I think it's, it's certainly possible. Like, I don't think it's a made-up story. I think that... There's some truth. What, how accurate is I don't know. But yeah, definitely an informant who's reached that point where they're like, oh, screw it. <laughs> Let, let's give them some stuff. Yeah. But the interesting thing is when the FBI gets this information, Sam Ferreira is still very much alive. They know he's alive. They know who he is. But at no point did they ever bother to tell the police, <laughs> which uh, I find interesting. Like, you know, you get told, hey... Sam Ferreira killed a guy, and the FBI is like, oh, yeah, we know Sam. They should probably tell the police, hey, we heard that Sam Ferreira killed a guy. You know, now, even if you don't have evidence, like, at least that gives Say, the hey. cops an opportunity yeah. to knock on Sam's door and ask him. Yeah, or, or just look a little bit into it. But, but then again, at the same time, it's, what, 20, 30 years later? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what are they going to find? Well, they're probably not going to find anything, but I still feel like it's like 
bare minimum their duty to like yeah ask and be like hey we heard uh you know though <laughs> you could you could they could have told them and the cops could have just been like well it's been 30 years what do you want us to do about it which is also true because you know? obviously they didn't care that much yeah <laughs> so. like this is this was not the funny thing about mob murders uh is if you go onto a police department's website and they have like a cold case page mm-hmm um, they don't list the mob murders. They don't list them. They just say it's like it. It's like it never happened. Bizarre. Well, so so like if you're like a girl who's walking home alone at night and you get stabbed, you're still a cold case sixty years later. But if you're a mob guy and you get shot, somebody drives off does just, does not appear on that list. But it's definitely not like if it gets solved, it gets solved. But it's not something that they're like. Yeah, please call in tips. No, they're not trying that hard. <laughs> Theories on why that is, is that just because, well, they're 